0: Book Four, Part One of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Broadrib. Book four AD twenty-three to twenty-eight, part one. The rise of Sejanus. The year when Caius Sassinius and Caius Antistius were consuls was the ninth of Tiberius's reign a period of tranquillity for the state and prosperity for his own house, for he counted Germanicus's death a happy incident. Suddenly fortune deranged everything. The emperor became a cruel tyrant, as well as an abettor of cruelty in others. Of this the cause and origin was Elias Sejanus, commander of the Praetorian cohorts, of whose influence I have already spoken. I will now fully describe his extraction, his character, and the daring wickedness by which he grasped at power. Born at Volsinii, the son of Seius Strabo, a Roman knight, he attached himself in his early youth to Caius Caesar, grandson of the divine Augustus, and the story went that he had sold his person to Apicius, a rich debauchee soon afterwards he won the heart of tiberius so effectually by various artifices that the emperor ever dark and mysterious towards others was with sejanus alone careless and free-spoken it was not through his craft for it was by this very weapon that he was overthrown it was rather from heaven's wrath against rome to whose welfare his elevation and his fall were alike disastrous. He had a body which could endure hardships and a daring spirit. He was one who screened himself while he was attacking others. He was as cringing as he was imperious. Before the world he affected humility. In his heart he lusted after supremacy, for the sake of which he was sometimes lavish and luxurious, but oftener, energetic and watchful, qualities quite as mischievous when hypocritically assumed for the attainment of sovereignty. He strengthened the hitherto moderate powers of his office by concentrating the cohorts scattered throughout the capital into one camp, so that they might all receive orders at the same moment, and that the sight of their numbers and strength might give confidence to themselves while it would strike terror into the citizens. His pretexts were the demoralization incident to a dispersed soldiery, the greater effectiveness of simultaneous action in the event of a sudden peril, and the stricter discipline which would be ensured by the establishment of an encampment at a distance from the temptations of the city. As soon as the camp was completed, he crept gradually into the affections of the soldiers by mixing with them and addressing them by name, himself selecting the centurions and tribunes. With the Senate, too, he sought to ingratiate himself, distinguishing his partisans with offices and provinces, Tiberius readily yielding, and being so biased that not only in private conversation, but before the senators and the people he spoke highly of him as the partner of his toils, and allowed his statutes to be honoured in theatres, in forums, and at the headquarters of our legions. There were, however, obstacles to his ambition in the imperial house with its many princes, a son in youthful manhood, and grown-up grandsons. As it would be unsafe to sweep off such a number at once by violence, while craft would necessitate successive intervals in crime, he chose on the whole the stealthier way, and to begin with Drusus, against whom he had the stimulus of a recent resentment. Drusus, who could not brook a rival, and was somewhat irascible, had in a casual dispute raised his fist at Sir Janus, and when he defended himself had struck him in the face. On considering every plan, Sejanus thought his easiest revenge was to turn his attention to Livia, Drusus's wife. She was a sister of Germanicus, and though she was not handsome as a girl, she became a woman of surpassing beauty. Pretending an ardent passion for her, he seduced her, and having won his first infamous triumph, and assured that a woman after having parted with her virtue will hesitate at nothing, he lured her on to thoughts of marriage, of a share in sovereignty, and of her husband's destruction. And she, the niece of Augustus, the daughter-in-law of Tiberius, the mother of children by Drusus, for a provincial paramour, foully disgraced herself, her ancestors, and her descendants, giving up honour and a sure position for prospects as base as they were uncertain. They took into their confidence Eudemus, Livia's friend and physician, whose profession was a pretext for frequent secret interviews. Sejanus, to avert his mistress's jealousy, divorced his wife, Epicata, by whom he had had three children. Still the magnitude of the crime caused fear and delay, and sometimes a conflict of plans. Meanwhile, at the beginning of this year, Drusus, one of the children of Germanicus, assumed the dress of manhood, with a repetition of the honours decreed by the senate to his brother Nero. The emperor added a speech with warm praise of his son for sharing a father's affection to his brother's children, Drusus, indeed, difficult as it is for power and mutual harmony to exist side by side, had the character of being kindly disposed or at least not unfriendly towards the lads. And now the old plan, so often insincerely broached, of a progress through the provinces was again discussed. The Emperor's pretext was the number of veterans on the eve of discharge and the necessity of fresh levies for the army. Volunteers were not forthcoming, and even if they were sufficiently numerous, they had not the same bravery and discipline, as it is chiefly the needy and the homeless who adopt by their own choice a soldier's life. Tiberius also rapidly enumerated the legions and the provinces which they had to garrison. I too ought, I think, to go through these details, and thus show what forces Rome then had under arms, what kings were our allies, and how much narrower then were the limits of our empire. Italy on both seas was guarded by fleets, at Misenum and at Ravenna, and the contiguous coast of Gaul, by ships of war captured in the victory of Actium, and sent by Augustus powerfully manned to the town of Foro Julium but chief strength was on the Rhine, as a defence alike against Germans and Gauls, and numbered eight legions. Spain, lately subjugated, was held by three. Mauritania was King Jubas, who had received it as a gift from the Roman people. The rest of Africa was garrisoned by two legions, and Egypt by the same number. Next, beginning with Syria, all within the entire tract of country stretching as far as the Euphrates, was kept in restraint by four legions, and on this frontier were Iberian, Albanian, and other kings, to whom our greatness was a protection against any foreign power. Thrace was held by Remotalses and the children of Cotis, the bank of the Danube by two legions in Pannonia, two in Mesia, and two also were stationed in Dalmatia, which from the situation of the country were in the rear of the other four, and, should Italy suddenly require aid, not too distant to be summoned. But the capital was garrisoned by its own special soldiery, three city, nine Praetorian cohorts, levied for the most part in Etruria and Umbria, or ancient Latium and the old Roman colonies. There were besides in commanding positions in the provinces allied fleets, cavalry and light infantry of but little inferior strength, but any detailed account of them would be misleading since they moved from place to place as circumstances required, and had their numbers increased and sometimes diminished. It is, however, I think, a convenient opportunity for me to review the hitherto prevailing methods of administration in the other departments of the State, inasmuch as that year brought with it the beginning of a change for the worse in Tiberius's policy. In the first place, public business and the most important private matters were managed by the Senate. The leading men were allowed freedom of discussion, and when they stooped to flattery, the emperor himself checked them. He bestowed honours with regard to noble ancestry, military renown, or brilliant accomplishments as a civilian, letting it be clearly seen that there were no better men to choose. The consul and the praetor retained their prestige, inferior magistrates exercised their authority, the laws too, with the single exception of cases of treason, were properly enforced. As to the duties on corn, the indirect taxes, and other branches of the public revenue, they were in the hands of companies of Roman knights. The Emperor entrusted his own property to men of the most tried integrity, or to persons known only by their general reputation, and once appointed they were retained without any limitation, so that most of them grew old in the same employments. The city populace, indeed, suffered much from high prices, but this was no fault of the emperor, who actually endeavoured to counteract barren soils and stormy seas with every resource of wealth and foresight. And he was also careful not to distress the provinces by new burdens, and to see that in bearing the old they were safe from any rapacity or oppression on the part of governors corporal punishments and confiscations of property were unknown. The Emperor had only a few estates in Italy, slaves on a moderate scale, and his household was confined to a few freedmen. If ever he had a dispute with a private person, it was decided in the law courts. All this, not indeed with any graciousness, but in a blunt fashion which often alarmed, he still kept up, until the death of Drusus changed everything. While he lived the system continued, because Sejanus, as yet only in the beginning of his power, wished to be known as an upright counsellor, and there was one whose vengeance he dreaded, who did not conceal his hatred, and incessantly complained that a stranger was invited to assist in the government while the emperor's son was alive. How near was the step of declaring the stranger a colleague? Ambition at first had a steep path before it. But when once the way had been entered, zealous adherents were forthcoming. Already at the pleasure of the commander of the guards, a camp had been established, the soldiers given into his hands, his statues were to be seen among the monuments of Cnaius Pompeius, His grandsons would be of the same blood as the family of the Drusae, henceforth they must pray that he might have self-control and so be contented. So would Drusus talk not unfrequently, or only in the hearing of a few persons. Even his confidences, now that his wife had been corrupted, were betrayed. Sejanus accordingly thought that he must be prompt, and chose a poison the gradual working of which might be mistaken for a natural disorder. It was given to Drusus by Lygdus, a eunuch, as was ascertained eight years later. As for Tiberius, he went to the senate-house during the whole time of the prince's illness, either because he was not afraid, or to show his strength of mind, and even in the interval between his death and funeral. Seeing the consuls in token of their grief sitting on the ordinary benches, he reminded them of their high office and of their proper place, and when the senate burst into tears, suppressing a groan, he revived their spirits with a fluent speech. He knew indeed that he might be reproached for thus encountering the gaze of the senate after so recent an affliction most mourners could hardly bear even the soothing words of kinsfolk or to look on the light of day and such were not to be condemned as weak but he had sought a more manly consolation in the bosom of the commonwealth then deploring the extreme age of augusta the childhood of his grandsons and his own declining years he begged the senate to summon germanicus's children the only comfort under their present misery. The consuls went out, and having encouraged the young princes with kind words, brought them in and presented them to the emperor. Taking them by the hand, he said, Senators, when these boys lost their father, I committed them to their uncle, and begged him, though he had children of his own, to cherish and rear them as his own offspring, and train them for himself and for posterity. Drusus is now lost to us, and I turn my prayers to you, and before heaven and your country I adjure you to receive into your care and guidance the great-grandsons of Augustus, descendants of a most noble ancestry. So fulfill your duty and mine. To you, Nero and Drusus, These senators are as fathers. Such is your birth that your prosperity and adversity must alike affect the state. There was great weeping at these words, and then many a benediction. Had the emperor set bounds to his speech, he must have filled the hearts of his hearers with sympathy and admiration but he now fell back on those idle and often ridiculed professions about restoring the Republic, and the wish that the consuls or someone else might undertake the government, and thus destroyed belief even in what was genuine and noble. The same honours were decreed to the memory of Drusus as to that of Germanicus, and many more were added. Such is the way with flattery when repeated." The funeral with its procession of statues was singularly grand. Aeneas, the father of the Julian house, all the Alban kings, Romulus, Rome's founder, then the Sabine nobility, Attus Clausus, and the busts of all the other Claudii were displayed in a long train. In relating the death of Drusus I have followed the narrative of most of the best historians. But I would not pass over a rumor of the time, the strength of which is not even yet exhausted. Sejanus, it is said, having seduced Livia into crime, next secured by the foulest means the consent of Ligdus, the eunuch, as from his youth and beauty he was his master's favorite and one of his principal attendants. When those who were in the secret had decided on the time and place of the poisoning. Sejanus, with the most consummate daring, reversed his plan, and, whispering an accusation against Drusus of intending to poison his father, warned Tiberius to avoid the first draught offered him as he was dining at his son's house. Thus deceived, the old emperor, on sitting down to the banquet, took the cup and handed it to Drusus. His suspicions were increased when Drusus, in perfect unconsciousness, drank it off with youthful eagerness, apparently out of fear and shame, bringing on himself the death which he had plotted against his father. These popular rumours, over and above the fact that they are not vouched for by any good writer, may be instantly refuted. For who, with moderate prudence, far less Tiberius with his great experience, would have thrust destruction on a son, without even hearing him, with his own hand too, and with an impossibility of returning to better thoughts. Surely he would rather have had the slave who handed the poison tortured, had sought to discover the traitor, in short, would have been as hesitating and tardy in the case of an only son hitherto unconvicted of any crime, as he was naturally even with strangers. But as Sir Janus had the credit of contriving every sort of wickedness, The fact that he was the Emperor's special favourite, and that both were hated by the rest of the world, procured belief for any monstrous fiction, and rumour too always has a dreadful side in regard to the deaths of men in power. Besides, the whole process of the crime was betrayed by Apicator, Sejanus's wife, and fully divulged under torture by Eudemus and Lygdus, No writer has been found sufficiently malignant to fix the guilt on Tiberius, though every circumstance was scrutinized and exaggerated. My object in mentioning and refuting this story is, by a conspicuous example, to put down hearsay, and to request all into whose hands my work shall come, Not to catch eagerly at wild and improbable rumours in preference to genuine history which has not been perverted into romance. Tiberius pronounced a panegyric on his son before the rostra, during which the Senate and people, in appearance rather than in heart, put on the expression and accents of sorrow, while they inwardly rejoiced at the brightening future of the family of Germanicus this beginning of popularity, and the ill-concealed ambition of their mother Agrippina, hastened its downfall. Sejanus, when he saw that the death of Drusus was not avenged on the murderers, and was no grief to the people, grew bold in wickedness, and, now that his first attempt had succeeded, speculated on the possibility of destroying the children of Germanicus, whose succession to the throne was a certainty. There were three, and poison could not be distributed among them because of the singular fidelity of their guardians and the unassailable virtue of Agrippina. So Sejanus inveighed against Agrippina's arrogance, and worked powerfully on Augusta's old hatred of her, and on Livia's consciousness of recent guilt, and urged both these women to represent to the Emperor that her pride as a mother and her reliance on popular enthusiasm were leading her to dream of empire. Livia availed herself of the cunning of accusers, among whom she had selected Julius Postumus, a man well suited to her purpose, as he had an intrigue with Mutilia Prisca, and was consequently in the confidence of Augusta, over whose mind Prisca had great influence. She thus made her aged grandmother, whose nature it was to tremble for her power, irreconcilably hostile to her grandson's widow. Agrippina's friends, too, were induced to be always inciting her proud spirit by mischievous talk. Tiberius, meanwhile, who did not relax his attention to business, and found solace in his work, occupied himself with the causes of citizens at rome and with petitions from allies decrees of the senate were passed at his proposal for relieving the cities of sibira and Aegeum in asia and Achea, which had suffered from earthquakes by a remission of three years tribute vibius serenus too proconsul of further spain was condemned for violence in his official capacity and was banished to the island of Amorgus for his savage temper. Carcidius sacerdos accused of having helped our enemy Tacferinus with supplies of grain, was acquitted, as was also Caius Gracchus on the same charge. Gracchus's father, Sempronius, had taken him when a mere child to the island of Caecina to be his companion in exile. There he grew up among outcasts, who knew nothing of a liberal education, and after a while supported himself in Africa and Sicily by petty trade. But he did not escape the dangers of high rank. Had not his innocence been protected by Elias Lamia and Lucius Apronius, successive governors of Africa, the splendid fame of that ill-starred family and the downfall of his father would have dragged him to ruin this year too brought embassies from the Greek communities. The people of Samos and Kos petitioned for the confirmation of the ancient rite of sanctuary for the respective temples of Juno and Aesculapius. The Samians relied on a decree of the Amphictyonic Council, which had the supreme decision of all questions when the Greeks, through the cities they had founded in Asia, had possession of the seacoast, Cos could boast equal antiquity, and it had an additional claim connected with the place. Roman citizens had been admitted to the temple of Aesculapius, when King Mithridates ordered a general massacre of them throughout all the islands and cities of Asia. Next, after various and usually fruitless complaints from the praetors, the emperor finally brought forward a motion about the licentious behavior of the players. They had often, he said, sought to disturb the public peace, and to bring disgrace on private families, and the old oscan farce, once a wretched amusement for the vulgar, had become at once so indecent and so popular that it must be checked by the Senate's authority. The players upon this were banished from Italy. That same year also brought fresh sorrow to the Emperor, by being fatal to one of the twin sons of Drusus, equally too by the death of an intimate friend. This was Lucilius Longus, the partner of all his griefs and joys, the only senator who had been the companion of his retirement in Rhodes. And so, though he was a man of humble origin, the Senate decreed him a censor's funeral, and a statue in the Forum of Augustus at the public expense. Everything, indeed, was as yet in the hands of the senate, and consequently Lucilius Capito, procurator of Asia, who was impeached by his province, was tried by them, the emperor vehemently asserting that he had merely given the man authority over the slaves and property of the imperial establishments, that if he had taken upon himself the powers of a praetor and used military force, He had disregarded his instructions, therefore they must hear the provincials. So the case was heard, and the accused condemned. The cities of Asia, gratified by this retribution, and the punishment inflicted in the previous year on Caius Silenus, voted a temple to Tiberius, his mother, and the senate, and were permitted to build it. Nero thanked the senators and his grandfather on their behalf, and carried with him the joyful sympathies of his audience, who, with the memory of Germanicus fresh in their minds, imagined that it was his face they saw, his voice they heard. The youth, too, had a modesty and a grace of person worthy of a prince, the more charming because of his peril from the notorious enmity of Sejanus about the same time the emperor spoke on the subject of electing a priest of jupiter in the room of servius meluginensis deceased and of the enactment of a new law it was he said the old custom to nominate together three patricians sons of parents wedded according to the primitive ceremony and of these one was to be chosen now however there was not the same choice as formerly the primitive form of marriage having been given up, or being observed only by a few persons. For this he assigned several reasons, the chief being men's and women's indifference, then again the ceremony itself had its difficulties, which were purposely avoided, and there was the objection that the man who obtained this priesthood was emancipated from the father's authority, as also was his wife, as passing into the husband's control. So the Senate, Tiberius argued, ought to apply some remedy by a decree of a law, as Augustus had accommodated certain relics of a rude antiquity to the modern spirit. It was then decided, after a discussion of religious questions, that the institution of the priests of Jupiter should remain unchanged. A law, however, was passed that the priestess, in regard to her sacred functions, was to be under the husband's control, but in other respects to retain the ordinary legal position of women. Meluginensis, the son, was chosen successor to his father. To raise the dignity of the priesthood, and to inspire the priests with more zeal in attending to the ceremonial, a gift of two million sesterces, Was decreed to the Vestal Cornelia, chosen in the room of Scantia, and whenever Augusta entered the theatre, she was to have a place in the seats of the Vestals. End of Book Four, Part One. Recording by Graham Redman.